This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 10th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The criminal justice system in the United States needs reform. The feds have created crimes out of activities that should be governed by state and local governments. And prison cells are regularly wasted on people guilty of small-time drug crimes. Mark Levin is director of the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We spoke last week. There's been a tremendous growth in both the number and scope of criminal laws, both at the federal level and at the state and local level. And uh, traditionally, of course, crimes were things like theft, uh, rape, murder, you know, and everybody knew what those were. But now what we've seen is this proliferation of crimes. And in states, you see it in their business code, their agriculture code, natural resources code, but concerning all sorts of things that people never would believe uh, could be criminal. In Texas, we have 11 felonies relating to harvesting oysters. And so there's these thousands of criminal laws, over 4,500 now at the federal level. The Congressional Research Office gave up. They couldn't count them all. And in Texas and Arizona, we each have over 1,500 criminal offenses. And that's just state. Then there's the local ordinances. And then, of course, there's the uh, regulatory crimes that have been created by uh, bureaucracies, agencies at the state and federal level pursuant to uh, broad uh, statutes that say any uh, violation of agency's rule is a criminal offense. And that's a huge overdelegation of power to unelected bureaucrats. So this is a, a very important area because it's critical that citizens know the line between what is legal and what is criminal so they're on notice. And therefore, only with that notice can there be a, a mens rea and intent to violate uh, to do something wrong. Um, And so it's really important that we rein in this growth in criminal laws. It's really been over the last several decades. It's paralleled the broader growth in government and that we ensure that there's a culpable mental state, a mens rea requirement uh, to be convicted uh, of of, uh, just about any crime. Ignorance of the law is no defense. But with this massive growth of laws that can get you jail time, can get you these huge fines that are crimes – Isn't that a defense? Well, yes, I would agree with Ed Meese, uh, who wrote in a recent Law Review article that we should have an ignorance of the law defense. Now, of course, ignorance of the facts has always been a, a defense, uh, that the ignorance that you uh, – that what you did, the facts of that would constitute a crime. But ignorance of the law, as you said, uh, doesn't make sense on something like murder or rape that everybody should know is, is illegal uh, and a crime. But when we're talking about these obscure regulatory offenses, and particularly when you think about like the Gibson guitar rape, where that involved the violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, or actually it was it was another of the Lacey Act. Uh, they're both a problem. But the Lacey Act is the one that says if you violate the law of another country, even if that's a dictatorial regime and that law is not in English, that's a crime in the United States. And this dealt with a Madagascar law, Madagascar law on wood that isn't even in English. So. Uh, it's absolutely there should be this limited ignorance of the law defense, um, and it, it you have to be an objectively reasonable belief that what you did did not violate any criminal law, or at least in this country, um, and and that is what. Uh, Ed Meese advocates, and I think that it would not lead to uh, abuse uh, because, again, any juror or judge would be able to say, would a reasonable person know that that is a crime? Now, reasonable person has its own uh, problems as a as a legal standard. You talk to, you talk about uh, mens rea, that is, in the, what is it, what is in the mind, and whether or not you had an intent to uh, commit a crime. Um, with the regulatory state, there's almost no way that that you can have that mental state in many cases. 
Right. And I I think objectively reasonable is different because that is uh, someone who's delusional, right, you know, might think something is reasonable that the average person wouldn't. But if it's objective, that's kind of what uh, the average person would say is reasonable. So um, but again, it's certainly better than just saying um, there's no ignorance, the law of defense at all, which I think um, poses a problem because there's no way the average person could know, even a lawyer could know all of the federal crimes, all of the state crimes. So um, it, it really is uh, important that uh, – and one of the things we've been working at the state level is to have a default mens rea provision adopted in as many states as possible. Currently, only about 18 states have a – and then what, what this is is if a statute is silent as to whether a culpable mental state is required for conviction, the default provision kicks in. And uh, the default could be recklessly, knowingly, intentionally. Uh, obviously, we prefer it to be somewhere between knowing and intentional to provide the most protection. So uh, there's several states uh, where we're working right now with other state-based free market think tanks such as Michigan, Ohio, and Rhode Island to hopefully see their legislatures adopt this default mens rea provision uh, in 2014. A lot of states uh, in recent years, even deep red states, have dramatically reduced uh, penalties for a lot of drug crimes. Can you talk about where that has moved? Yeah, and it's important to point out the linkage between this and the the uh, mens rea issue. We actually filed an amicus brief in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, a case that's still pending. But this involves a federal, a Florida drug law, which the legislature wrote to say no culpable mental state is required for conviction, which is strict criminal liability, which you rarely uh, see. Uh, it's disfavored historically in our jurisprudence. And um, so what that means, of course, is if you rent a car at Hertz and there's drugs where the spare tire is supposed to be, and not only did you not know it was there, but you weren't even negligent. I mean, who would check that? right? And you get pulled over, you're subject to a mandatory minimum in Florida of many years uh, in prison. So uh, a federal district judge appointed by President Bush uh, struck this down as violative of due process. And we filed an amicus brief in the 11th Circuit in support of her opinion. So we'll see how that comes out. But um, on the broader issue, there are, um, you know, about a third of of people incarcerated are drug related. And uh, what's important is certainly at the federal level, the Smarter Sentencing Act, which is uh, now passed out of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, would rein in the mandatory minimums on low-level federal drug offenses, cutting them back by half, which would make a substantial difference in having sentences that are more proportionate. Um, And at the state level, we've seen a number of states, including South Carolina, uh, Georgia, Ohio, adopt substantial drug sentencing reforms, which really essentially create a presumption of some alternative to prison for low-level drug possession, um, such as drug courts, uh, probation with treatment, and other alternatives that are more cost-effective than prison. One of the things that right before we started recording, you talked about is this idea of restitution versus paying a debt to society. Now, that's all well and good to to have committed a crime. Yes, perhaps you do owe a debt to society, but if it's a property crime that can be uh, fixed, can be replaced, uh, it does make a lot more sense that you first pay back the person who you violated and then pay whatever debt to society. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think that um, unfortunately the mindset on this has really been dominated by a big government mentality. Uh, that is that if you steal from someone, somehow the government's the victim and you should pay fines and fees to the government. And we've seen cases where somebody stole from a merchant or an individual and thousands and fines and fees have been collected uh, by the government and still the victim hasn't gotten restitution. So it's, it's in reverse of what it should be, that uh, the individual who was stolen from is in fact 
back the victim, not the government, and that uh, uh, restitution, um, and one of the ways to do that is victim offender mediation, uh, where you have a uh, mediator, can be an attorney or a priest or anybody, a volunteer from the community, and you have a binding agreement to pay restitution, perform community service, an apology. A lot of victims really want an apology and an assurance that that person won't steal from someone else. And again, this isn't for someone who's a career thief, but but particularly for first-time offenders, this is a great alternative. It costs a lot less. Uh, the data shows victims are much more satisfied, uh, much more likely to get restitution. And by the way, one thing we know is prisoners pay almost nothing in restitution. We've actually computed that uh, those on probation pay 98 times more in restitution than those in prison. Um, so for victims, and, and we looked at a survey of burglary victims in Iowa, and over 80% wanted restitution and community service. Only 7% wanted a, a jail or prison term of a year or more. So I think there's a misconception that uh, victims want to see all property offenders go uh, be incarcerated when, in fact, uh, restitution is of a paramount concern. And you you made specific reference to first-time offenders. These are often very young people whose lives can be wrecked with a criminal record or jail time. Well, that's another great point because uh, if you do this victim-offender mediation successfully, uh, and this, by the way, is the primary system in a country like New Zealand, um, and it, there's about 300 programs in the U.S., but if you do it successfully, you don't have a conviction on your record. And that's a huge benefit in terms of getting a job, uh, getting employment and, and uh, housing, education, and so forth. And, you know, th there's now more than 20 percent of adults in the United States have a criminal record, and it is a scarlet letter. Um, and I, again, it, it reinforces the idea that this is the government uh, that has been wronged. And now that government uh, branding is being carried around with these individuals for the rest of their life. It's a cliche to say that there are political odd couples that get together to push for these sentencing reforms. Rand Paul, Patrick Leahy, Mike Lee, Dick Durbin are all sort of fighting this issue on uh, mandatory minimum sentencing at the, at the federal level and trying to correct that. And in addition, trying to actually come up with that list of uh, criminal penalties under federal law. You said that the Smart Sentencing Act, which is I believe the Lee-Durbin uh, piece of legislation that is a out of committee. What what's going to happen to that? Well, uh, I think the prospects are very good. And in fact, there's another bill that was approved today as we sit here on uh, March 6th that basically says uh, it's a corn in White House bill, not Obama, but Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island, that allows uh, low-level offenders in federal prison to earn time by completing programs and such towards their release. And it also provides for some recidivism reduction and risk assessment approaches that have worked very well in Texas and other states. Um, so that's very bipartisan as well. And frankly, this is about the only area in Congress where uh, agreement is being found. Um, so I think the prospects are excellent. And, um, you know, I think that People have lots of different reasons for wanting to take up criminal justice reform, uh, public safety, knowing that there are approaches for nonviolent offenders other than prison that are actually proven to uh, have better outcomes. Because, you know, a lot of times when people go into prison as low risk, they come out of prison as high risk as the people they ran into there that were, of course, uh, more, uh, you know, were, were, were uh, terrible influence on them. And the fact that they were now uh, uh, separated from their family, from the church, uh, from all the positive things, job that they had in their life and it's incredibly difficult to reestablish those things when you're released. So um, prison does one thing well, which is incapacitate uh, people, which is useful for violent and uh, sex offenders and so forth. But uh, again, uh, I think there's tremendous uh, 
support for this from not public safety standpoint, fiscal standpoint, obviously uh, cost-wise. Um, the cost of incarceration is incredible, especially in the juvenile system. It's $620 a night for a kid in juvenile detention in New York City. And you can do a great uh, probation program for uh, literally $10 a day. So um, our drug court and those things. So um, and then, of course, there's also very much a, an aspect of this of, of people who uh, – believe in redemption, that people can change. And and so for all these reasons, you're seeing uh, really, I think, a consensus developed that we need to right-size the criminal justice system. What has changed since the 1980s and 90s? Well, crime has been going down for two decades, so that's helped. It's created the space to discuss these issues. Um, and I think that the other thing is uh, we kind of look at it as a pendulum. So, I mean, if you even go back to the early 70s, from then until the mid-2000s, there was a six-fold increase in incarceration. And, you know, you can – I think there's a good case to be made that some of that was necessary um, when it came to violent and, and sex offenders and so forth. But much of it led to uh, kind of a sweeping in of nonviolent and low-risk offenders. Uh, it's kind of like the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And that's certainly the case with prisons. Um, and I think the other thing is there have been a lot of advances in uh, techniques and, and approaches for dealing with crime and particularly for safely supervising people on probation. So you know, things like drug courts, electronic monitoring, uh, even pharmaceutical treatments for uh, opioid addiction. I mean, there's lots of uh, developments that have occurred. And, and these actuarial risk and needs assessments are incredibly valuable now because it lets you kind of match the right offender with the right program uh, and the right level of supervision uh, if you have them on probation. How helps you tell you how often they need to report, what programs they should be in. So, um, I think those are some of the factors that, that have led to this. And um, um, so uh, – and obviously there is, of course, the fiscal reason. But we, we really do uh, – the way I think most policymakers and the way we look at it is kind of saving money is the appetizer and the entree is getting better results for the, for the public in terms of a safer community, uh, people keeping families together and putting people on track to being productive members of society. Mark Levin is director of the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. You can read more about our broken criminal justice system at Cato.org.